And I'm going to read from Daniel 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked, and its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw... In the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all, all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked by the roots." And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> As we approach our communion table today, we venture into, for the first time, the second half um, of our book in Daniel. And this is kind of like the Bermuda Triangle of uh, the scriptures, right? Um, and I mean, what I mean by that is the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation is confusing, you know, to us. Um, and not only confusing, we get lost in those places, which is why it's like the Bermuda Triangle um, of the Bible. Um, and the, one of the reasons that these passages are um, confusing to us is because they're a kind of literature that we just don't have that much of these days. It's a kind of literature that you, don't, you and I, we don't really read of these days that much. And it's a kind of literature called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. And you probably don't remember the last time you ever read apocalyptic literature outside the Bible because it's very hard to find. And because we don't know how this genre works, um, it's a little bit hard for us to um, understand the books of Revelation in the second half of Daniel. The word apocalyptic, obviously, uh, it brings your uh, mind to the word apocalypse. And for many of us, when we think apocalypse, we think the end of the world, right? That's kind of the association we have with that word. But the word apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. The world, word uh, apocalypse really means revelation or a disclosure or God showing himself, which is why the book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation because that's where God shows himself. And that's exactly what apocalyptic literature is. 
Apocalyptic literature is God showing himself um, from heaven to people who are on earth. And that's why you have all these images in both uh, Daniel and Revelation. And all these images initially are really frightening images. And that's why a lot of people just stay away from the book of Revelation because they don't like it. They don't like these images and they don't like kind of uh, what they think these images might represent. Um, and, but I want to tell you that although these images may initially be frightening, actually these images are meant to comfort you. Uh, these images and the story and the narrative of Revelation and the end of Daniel is meant to bring you peace in your heart. Because apocalyptic literature is given to people who have no hope. Apocalyptic literature is given to people who they look around in their lives and they have no evidence of hope. And they have no evidence of victory anywhere in their lives. And that's the kind of people who are given apocalyptic literature. They're people who are given visions of hope through apocalyptic literature because when they look around in their lives, all they see is defeat. Defeat. And they can't see any evidence of anything else except defeat. This week um, is election week. And it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you are on, some of us may feel defeat this week because of the outcome of the election. And you may, on Tuesday or whenever it is they finish counting the votes, you may feel like you see nothing but defeat because your candidate lost. I want to tell you that apocalyptic literature, the book of Daniel, is given to you to give you visions of hope when you see none in your life. It sounds a lot like 2020, right? Very little to hope in. And yet, this book is given to us so that we could see a vision of hope um, while we are in the fire, while we feel defeated. That's what it's for. And today we're going to get into Daniel 7, which is, in my uh, reading of Daniel, kind of the central vision of the book of Daniel. And it touches on three themes that we're going to touch on today to help us to understand how is this picture supposed to give us any hope. Um, these three themes are, one, chaos, secondly, victory, and the last one is the Son of Man, okay? Chaos, victory, and the Son of Man. And when we understand these three things all come together, we'll understand how this is supposed to give us hope. When you look around in 2020 and there's nothing to hope in, the book of Daniel is given to you so that you can be held steady in peace by the vision of hope. And those three things will also take us beautifully um, to uh, the communion table uh, where we'll get our hope through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray together as we come to his word. Father, we want to admit to you that apocalyptic literature, it's hard for us. And it's hard for us to understand what you're trying to say to us through these visions. And maybe some of us our whole lives have just avoided it. And today, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us and show us why in your heart you gave us this to a people who may see no hope in 2020, why you gave this to us so that we could see you. I pray that your spirit would speak in ways that I can't and that you would send your spirit to comfort those who are in turmoil. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So as we open up uh, this kind of strange book, um, or the second half of this book, the first kind of theme that I want to cover with you is this theme of chaos, which is really evident um, in Daniel 7. And I just want to read to you again verses 1 to 3. It says this, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. Now this is the first dream that it doesn't come from a king, but it comes from Daniel himself. Okay, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the some of the matter. And here's what he saw. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the four beasts came out of the sea different uh, from one another. The first thing that we see immediately is this chaos um, inside of this vision. And we see it because the picture here is of the sea. Uh, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, in, um, in the people of God, the people of Israel, the sea was a picture of absolute chaos. You see, you have to remember, there's no radar back in the day. There's no kind of seeing what's out there except standing by um, the shore and looking out there. But the sea was the chaotic place, the place that you didn't know really anything about. But all you knew was oftentimes fathers and brothers would get on ships and go on fishing adventures and fishing trips and never come back. The sea was that place that swallowed people up and you didn't know what happened to them. The sea is the place of chaos, which is why when you get into Exodus and God, what does he do? He splits the sea. He splits the chaos and the danger and the devastation of Israelite life in order for them to walk on dry land. The sea is that picture of devastation and chaos. Now, the thing about the sea is it's largely out there. As long as you're not a fisherman or as long as you're not kind of crazy and you try to go out there into the sea, you can keep yourself distanced from the sea. You can keep it far away from you because it's a scary thing. It's a devastating thing. The chaos, you could keep it away from your life. But in this vision, what you see is four beasts coming out of the sea. And those four beasts now have legs that could bring them onto land. They are not contained in the sea anymore. Now you have the crazy stuff that's out there in the news, the crazy stuff that you've always been scared of coming into your life. That's what's different about this vision. The sea was always out there, but all of a sudden, because of these beasts, those crazy things out there are coming now into your life. It's no longer just out there. It's in there, in your life now. Now, specifically, um, in regards to this vision, the four beasts represent four kingdoms that do just that. You see, the Israelites saw the pagan nations as these crazy people out there who may be killing each other, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but they're out there. They don't have anything to do with us. We keep a peaceful life here in Israel, and then all, all these crazy people are out there. God knows what they're doing. But the four beasts represent these four kingdoms that bring the chaos of out there now into Israel. These nations are going to march into their homes and affect the way that they live. This chaos comes from the pagan world onto land into their life. And the first beast that you see here is most likely Babylon. If you read verse 4, it says this, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. 
If you recall the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which we didn't, you know, was not that long ago that we covered that story. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his life, this mighty king was humbled to become a beast. And when he was humbled to become a beast, he eventually looked up into heaven and he regained his mind and he stood back up like a man and he regained the dignity of being a man again. This uh, verse probably intimates that event in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And the lion was actually a picture of Babylon in that day. And here's that first kingdom that brings the chaos and the devastation of out there into their world, Babylon. The second beast here is the second nation that does that. Uh, It says in verse 5 this. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, arise, devour much flesh. This is the kingdom of uh, the Mede-Persians, the Mede-Persian Empire. Now, if you have been paying attention, you could probably tell that this is the same succession of kingdoms that we saw in Daniel 2 in the statue, and it is. But here is the Mede-Persian Empire, the next empire that would bring the craziness of things out there into our lives, into their lives. And it says that it was raised up on one side because even though it was a partnership kingdom between the Medes and the Persians, eventually the Persians would be the dominant kingdom. It would be the mighty kingdom inside of that partnership. And so the bear is raised up on just one side. Next, the next uh, and third kingdom is this leopard. It says in verse six, after I looked and behold another like a leopard had four wings, that's unique. A leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And here is uh, the Greek kingdom. Here is Greece uh, represented as a leopard with four wings and the, the significance of that is speed. You see, that is one thing. I don't know if you remember your ancient Greek history classes. I don't know if you covered it in high school or middle school. But the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered, um, it was pretty amazing. The speed and efficiency with which the guy in his 20s conquered lands. The four wings that double the speed of all the other beasts Uh, We see Alexander the Great conquering like this. And here is the Greek kingdom, which is the third kingdom, who's going to bring the chaos of out there into their lives. And lastly here it says in verse 7, After I saw, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had iron teeth. It's Rome. This final, last, nondescript kingdom is Rome. The most powerful one, the most uh, destructive one for God's people. Um, Daniel would not see uh, Greece and Rome in his lifetime, but here is another kingdom that will bring the chaos of out there into the world of the Israelites. Now, I've just gone through these four beasts and I've explained to you who they are and what they are. But I want to tell you that the main thing is not to understand what each beast is. Um, It's not actually the concern of the vision that Daniel knows who it is. In fact, Daniel doesn't know who these kingdoms are. But that's one of our problems with apocalyptic literature, 
is we read stuff like this and we read Revelation and we're wondering who is that or what is that? What are the horns? Ten horns and it's talking. There's, there's a horn that takes out three of the other horns. What is that? You see, one of the issues for us, brothers and sisters, is that we treat apocalyptic literature like code. You know what code is? Breaking the code or cracking the code. If you think back to World War II, um, the cracking the code of the Nazis. That's sometimes how we treat apocalyptic literature and that's not the way that it's meant to be read. The thing about code is, unless you can crack the code and you know exactly what it's referring to, it has no uh, significance for you or it can't help you unless you could crack the code. And often we treat it like that with our kind of post-enlightenment minds. We want to know exactly what the thing is. But I want to tell you that Daniel and Revelation are not meant to be read like that. And the significance and meaning of the books are not hidden from you until you can crack the code. That's not how it works. They're not codes, but they're symbols. You see, the difference between code and symbol is that symbols don't have one particular singular thing that it's referring to. Symbols can refer to a lot of things, as long as it relates to the symbol. Right? Symbols can apply to a lot of different things. And so I want to encourage you as you read the books of Daniel and Revelation, don't treat it like code. And don't feel so bogged down that because you can't understand the code of what is 666, you know, we're not supposed to read it like that. In fact, when you look at this, and I don't know, read Daniel uh, 7 verse 19. Daniel actually says, oh, I want to know what that fourth beast is. Because he's never going to see that, you know, it's Rome and he's never going to see it. And so he goes to one of the figures in his vision and he says, who is the fourth beast? And he goes and asks who the fourth beast is. And what the figure in his vision says to him is this in verse 23. He says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it to pieces. He doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't tell him any new information. This is exactly what Daniel knew. And when he says, who is this fourth beast? Essentially, the vision says back to him, don't worry about it. It's not, you're missing the point. If you just want to know who is it, what is it, when is it? That's not the point, Daniel. You don't need to know. That's not the point. You see, the Babylonians who received the book of Daniel knew even less than us. They had never heard of Rome. They had never heard of Alexander the Great. They knew even less than us. And yet, this vision was supposed to come into their hearts and do the work that God had intended his word to do for them. See, all that to say, we need to treat apocalyptic literature the way that it was meant to be treated. And the way that he gives it to us is that we're supposed to experience the fear and chaos that these beasts represent and not just try to identify them. Because if we identify them, so what? Greece, Rome is behind us. So we have nothing to worry about. That's not the point here. It's a symbol. These beasts are a symbol of things that you always are afraid of but have never come into your life, but all of a sudden it's happening to you. Stuff that you've always been afraid that might happen to you, but ah, I'm sure it won't happen, but it does happen. It does happen. And it begins to overpower you in your life and it makes you feel defeated because you never thought that that would happen to you. 
You never thought that you would be divorced. You never thought that you would get that diagnosis of cancer. You never thought that that crazy thing that other people experience out there, you've heard of it, but you never thought that that stuff out there in the sea would come into your living room. That's what the beasts are. The beasts are the things that you never thought would happen to you because it's so crazy chaotic, but it does happen to you. Each one of these creatures are indomitable creatures. Creatures that can't be dominated, and yet they show up in your life. And all of a sudden, you feel what Daniel is feeling. You know, I um, read an article this week um, in the New York Magazine, and it was talking about the history of pandemics. And it was crazy, when you read the history of pandemics, what it was like to be in 14th century Europe when the Black Plague was around. Uh, when you were around the bubonic plague or uh, in, northern, um, in North America when smallpox was here, it is really scary what those uh, pandemics were like. The author argues that COVID-19 is just the next one in a succession of pandemics that have periodically hit the world. And what he says is every time you see a pandemic hit the world, this is what happens. Each time, everyone thinks it's the end of the world. Everyone thinks this is the end. This is it, there's nothing after this. And the second thing that it does is it changes us because it's so devastating. I wanna read you some of the article because I think that we'll be able to relate to it. Andrew Sullivan is the author and he writes in this, he says, plagues have often been catalyzing events, entering human history like asteroids hitting a planet. They kill shocking numbers of people and leave many more rudderless, coping with massive loss, incalculable, grief, and often social collapse. They suspend the society in midair and traumatize it. This kind of trauma, the historical record shows, changes us, reminding humans of our mortality. Plagues throw up existential questions that could lead to deep cultural shifts. He's saying to us, what pandemics do to people is they remind us that we are killable and killable in mass numbers, and we are far more frail than we think. It's a scary beast that shows up into our lives and reminds us, I can kill you. You are defeated. Brothers and sisters, that is the exact kind of situation that God gives Daniel to, gives Revelation to. Because what God is trying to say through Daniel and through Revelation is not, hey, come and crack this code. But what he's saying is, I want to show you a vision of me because all you're seeing every single day as you look on Facebook, social media, CNN, and the news, all you're seeing is defeat every single day. And all day, I want to give you a vision of what's happening in the spiritual realm so that I can lift your head so that you will not feel defeated. The next thing that we see in the scriptures here is victory, victory. Uh, let's read verse 9 together as God shows us himself. In verse 9, it says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
Again, it's not code. And obviously, we're not supposed to take this literally. So the question is, what is the point of this? What is the ancient of days? And what's the point of it? You could say that Daniel and Revelation are books of counter-visions, counter-visions to us. What I mean by that is every day you see visions. You go on your phone, you go on your computer, you listen to things, you listen to podcasts, and you're receiving visions of reality in your mind. All day long, you're receiving visions of what's reality. The books of Daniel and Revelation are given to us as counter-visions, visions that are supposed to counter what you experience all day long, the defeat that you feel all day long. It's offered as a counter-vision to raise your head up and to look at your Savior. And this is what we see here, the Ancient of Days presented to us as a counter-vision of what we fear all day long. The vision here is someone who is far more powerful, far more terrifying, and far more present than the beasts. You get first the beasts, and they're big, you know, strange, scary, indomitable creatures. But then by the time you get to verse 9, they're like nothing. They're like nothing. Because by the time you get to verse 9, you see a picture of the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, God himself, is supposed to also incite in us a feeling and the feeling that the ancient of days is supposed to incite in us is a feeling of security the ancient of days is supposed to give us this feeling of victory and assurance and the vision of the ancient of days is supposed to overpower the beasts Here is the king in absolute power. Look at this. His throne is fiery flames, right? Which makes you wonder kind of about, you know, verse 9 because it says that people place the thrones. But how do you place thrones of fire without getting burned up, right? But again, that's not the point. The point is there's so much power that in verse 10, a stream of fire issues out of the throne. And here is someone who is completely in charge and of absolute power. But what is that um, kind of epithet, the name Ancient of Days? What does that mean, right? Ancient of Days, I don't know if you've ever heard of that name for God. The point of the word, uh, name Ancient of Days is this. He is the one who will never be defeated. He will never die. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And you may be surprised by the stuff that comes into your life. You may be surprised by the beasts that show up in your life. But he's not surprised. Because he's the ancient of days. He's seen it all. And when we say that God is eternal or he lives from everlasting to everlasting, we're not just saying he lives a very, very long time. That's not the point. The point is no one can defeat him. That's why he keeps reigning. That's why he keeps living. No one can challenge him, which is why he sits on the throne forever and ever and ever. His dominion is everlasting. When we say that he's eternal, it just doesn't mean that he's very, very old and he can't die. We're saying he's so powerful that no one can defeat him. He is the ancient of days. He's seen it all. And yet he's unfazed and he reigns. And now when you get to verse 11, the beasts who looked so incredible at the first uh, four verses and these indomitable beasts, what you see is they're like, they're like nothing. Let's read verse 11 together. It says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. 
and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The Ancient of Days doesn't even need to get up from his throne to defeat these beasts. Immediately killed like an afterthought. And not only that, a couple are just allowed to survive. Just let, just let them live. And the picture is like, I imagine like rats just scurrying out and the Ancient of Days on his throne just saying, it's fine. Just let them go. Do you see how the picture of the ancient of days is supposed to overpower all of these crazy things that have come into our lives that we thought would never happen to us, but the counter vision of the ancient of days is supposed to transfer the trembling that we felt from seeing the beasts and transfer our trembling over to the beasts. Because now the beasts have to tremble because of the ancient of days. Because he is in control. And before we trembled at the beasts. But the picture of the ancient of days is supposed to give us so much confidence and courage that we're supposed to be able to look at the beasts in our lives and say, wait a minute, I shouldn't tremble. You should tremble. Because your days are numbered. I am the one who knows the ancient of days. And so my victory is certain. That's why he gave us Daniel. That's why he gave us Revelation. Because apocalyptic literature is supposed to come into your life when you hit the wall of the worst stuff that could ever happen to you. Indomitable beasts. I'm not talking about everyday annoyances, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about the stuff you can't go to work because it happened to you. We're talking about that kind of thing the paralyzing stuff. That's when you open up the book of Daniel. That's when you open up the book of Revelation. It's the big guns when you need them. You see, brothers and sisters, it's a counter vision because we need it. And when we live our lives so separated from spiritual reality of who God is, And we live our lives that way. When these things, these beasts come into your life and they come out of that sea, they come out of the news and they come into your life, it will shake you with tremendous uncertainty and fear. When that news breaks and you look at your life and you only see defeat, when you fail at the thing that you've been studying for for years and you fail and all you see is defeat, when the things happen to you that weren't supposed to happen to you, brothers and sisters, when all you see is defeat, that's what this book is for. It's supposed to pull back the curtain of heaven and to show you the ancient of days. That's why apocalypse is not just about the end of days. It's about Revealing to you God himself. Apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Apocalypse means a revelation of God. The end is not what's supposed to give you hope. We're not supposed to look at um, revelation and simply walk away with, ah, in the end God wins. And so I have hope. No, it's not just about the end. Our faith is not in the end. Our faith is in God himself. That's why apocalyptic literature is not about telling you the end of the story. It's about showing you God himself, the ancient of days. And when you see God, you're supposed to have faith. 
And brothers and sisters, today I want to do something. Um, I've taken the liberty, and it might sound a little bit crazy or overconfident or whatever you want to say, but I've written my own apocalyptic literature. And I wrote it for us. Um, And I wrote it for us in 2020. And I, I think the images will be relevant enough that you'll know exactly what they mean. But I wrote this because I wanted to explain to you how Daniel 7 is supposed to be understood, and I also wanted to give you apocalyptic hope for what you are experiencing in our world right now. So bear with me. I wrote this. It's not scripture, okay? Not scripture. I made it up this week, um, but I wrote it for us so that we have a vision of hope in what we're going through. And it goes like this. In the time of the fourth year of the reign of Donald Trump, I had a vision. And out of the sea, I saw with my eyes a viper. And this viper had venom. And the venom took away the breath of the saints. And this viper was allowed to spread his venom across the whole earth. And the venom consumed saints from all the four corners of the earth. At the same time, I saw what seemed to be like an eagle And out of the eagle, I saw emerge two beasts, an elephant and a donkey. And in the 11th month of the fourth year of the reign of Donald Trump, the saints trembled before the elephant. And the saints trembled before the donkey because each the donkey and the elephant held a scroll. But nobody knew what was in the scroll. And so the saints trembled before the elephant and the donkey because they did not know the meaning of the scrolls. Then out of the same eagle, I saw what seemed to be a man with two heads, a black head and a white head. And the two heads threatened to tear the man apart and destroy the eagle at the same time. And the saints trembled before these two heads and shouted with cries of anguish because the man was about to be torn apart. And finally, I saw a beast that I could not name and the beast roared louder than all the other beasts that made the saints tremble. It made the saints tremble deeper than the eagle, the viper, the elephant, the donkey, or the man for no one knew what this beast was. Now, I think you'll be able to interpret that apocalyptic because it's about your life and it's about where you are it's not about Greece Persia or Rome but it's about where you guys are right now it's where we all are but it's not over but then above all these beasts I saw from the clouds what looked like to be the son of man and the son of man was given dominion over all the beasts and the saints who lost their breath from the venom of the viper They were breathed the breath of the true and living God. And those who trembled before the donkey and trembled before the elephant hid under the authority of the Son of Man. And the ones who were torn apart by the man with two heads were actually made whole by the scepter of the Son of Man. And those who feared the unknown beasts were given white robes and they were given the power to sing the songs of praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these songs of praise drowned out the fear of the unknown beast because they sang, for his kingdom is mighty, his dominion is everlasting, and his saints shall be secured in his glory.
Brothers and sisters, we need a counter vision. Because today we have our own beasts. And you have some of those beasts that I mentioned here. But you have some beasts in your own life that no one knows about, that weren't supposed to be in your life, but they are in your life. You, my brother, my sister, need a vision of the victory of the ancient of days. That's why he gave you his word. The last theme that I want to bring to you is all of this victory in the ancient of days is actually brought to us through a vision of the Son of Man. Now I want to read to you from verse 13 to 14, and this will be our last one. It says this in verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And in verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We end with this vision of the Son of Man. And what we see in verse 14 is that the dominion and the power and the kingdom comes through the Son of Man to us. The mighty victory of the ancient of days. That was, you know, honestly, it was pretty easy for the ancient of days. But that mighty victory comes through the Son of Man and to his people. And we get our victory through this one who is the son of man. Now, what does that mean, the son of man? It emphasizes his humanness, his humanness. You might have heard of Jesus Christ that he is the son of God, and he is the son of God. And the son of God emphasizes his divinity before us. But the son of man also emphasizes to us his kingly human rule for us. It reminds us that Jesus Christ is not just divine and powerful, but he had hands and that he had feet and that he had arms that he could hold us with and he, could have feet, he had feet that walked towards us and he had knees and he got down on his knees and grabbed kids and he had eyes that cried real tears for Lazarus. We're reminded by this epithet in the Son of Man that he wasn't just this ancient of days, fiery throne and all that, but he was real enough to hug us. That he was real enough to die for us. And that he was real enough to walk among us and to make sure we knew about victory. The victory of the ancient of days comes to us through the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, that's where we need to go in order to achieve this victory is we need to go to Jesus Christ to whom God has given this dominion so that he could walk to us and give it to us. I want to show you a picture of what this all kind of looks like and culminates in. And this one last story and then I'll close. There is a story in the New Testament about a man named Jairus. I don't know if you've ever read the story, but this man named Jairus, he's got a 12-year-old girl. And the beast that he could never imagine came out of the sea and came into his life because his little girl is sick. His little girl is sick and his little girl is dying and dying very, very quickly. And so the beast that was out there and was never supposed to come into his house is at his house. The death of his child. The only thing that he could think of is to go to Jesus. And so he runs to Jesus and he implores Jesus to come to him. 
And Jesus miraculously for him says, yes, I will come and heal your daughter. But then he stops. He stops to help this old lady who's been bleeding for 12 years. And as he's helping her, all of a sudden, his servant is coming. And I can imagine Jairus thinking, why is my servant running here to me when I'm going to him? And his servant is running and he gets the news that is the most powerful beast that came out of the sea and the most fearsome beast that he can imagine in his life, the servant comes to him and says, your daughter is dead. He says, your daughter is dead. There it is, defeat. All he could see is defeat. Now, I read this story to my daughter in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's one of my favorite stories to read to her in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I want to read you a couple of lines of how um, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she writes this for kids. It's really good. Um, This is what it says. Just then, Jairus' servant rushed up to Jairus. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. But then she writes this. Jesus turned to Jairus. He looked at Jairus and he said, it's not too late. Trust me. It's not too late. Trust me. Don't you see what Jesus is doing here for Jairus? Jairus had been defeated by the most powerful beast that he can imagine coming out of the sea into his bedroom. And Jesus looks at him as he's defeated by this beast. He grabs him and he says, don't look at the beast. Look at me. Don't look at the beast. Look at me. I am a counter vision for what you are feeling in your heart right now. Look at me, Jairus. It's not too late. Look at me, the son of man. Sally Lloyd-Jones, she writes that Jesus then walks over to his house, walked into this little girl's bedroom, and there, lying in the corner in the shadows, was the still little figure, and Jesus sat on the bed, and he took up her pale hand, and he said, Honey, honey, it's time to get up. And it says this, He reached down into death, And he gently brought the little girl back to life. Isn't that great? That's the son of man. That's what it looks like when the ancient of days gives dominion and power to somebody who has hands and feet and loves you and comes and sits on a little girl's bed, has the victory and power enough to reach down into death, but can gently pull it up back to life. I say, honey, wake up. That's the son of man for you. That's the son of man for me. Don't you see who you need to go to when you feel the beasts in your life? And then she writes this. Jesus helped many people this way. Jesus helped many people this way. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk because Jesus was making sad things come untrue. Isn't that a great way to explain it to kids? Jesus was making sad things come untrue because he was fixing God's broken world. A counter vision. In Revelation, Daniel, stuff maybe that you've never understood before is this. Is Jesus looking at us and saying, look at me. I know you feel the beasts in your life, but look at me. 
I am the son of man, empowered with the dominion and victory of the ancient of days. I can reach down into death and gently pull you to life and say, honey, wake up. That's what it is. That's apocalyptic literature. God's showing you who he is so he can reach into your life and give you a vision of who he is. Brothers and sisters, I don't know exactly what the beasts are in in your life, but whatever they are, lift up your heads to the ancient of days. He has given dominion to a son of man who loves you, will sit on your bed and raise you up with gentleness and care. The son of man. So don't lose hope. And look at the counter vision that today he gives to you. Let's pray. And let's go to the table together. I just want to ask you to pray. Um, because today we are Jairus. All of us, we're experiencing the beasts in our own lives. And yet we need to come to him. And he gives us apocalyptic literature, not in order to confuse us, but to look at us so that we would look at him. So today, brothers and sisters, before we come to the communion table, I just want to give you a minute to look at your Savior with the beast that you feel and to hear him say, don't look at that, just look at me. I have dominion, power everlasting. Let's go to our Savior and pray before we come to the communion table.